What's so great about salvation? Understanding the biblical doctrine of salvation. When you think of salvation tonight, many words come to your mind. Um, Christianity is 2.3 billion believers around the world. 2.3 billion is estimated. In that 2.3 billion, Christianity is composed of three branches of Christianity. Branches. The first branch is called Roman Catholicism. The second branch is called Greek Orthodox. And the third branch is called the Protestant Church. So I want you to repeat after me the three branches within Christianity, okay? Say this with me, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and the Protestant Church. Everybody say the Protestant Church. Those three are the main branches of Christianity. Now there may be a little difference in some of sects that will split off from those branches, but those are the three main branches of the Christian church. So why is that important for you to know? If you went through starting point, you'll know that those are the three main branches. I am tonight not going to discuss these. I'm just going to make a brief side note so that you'll understand where I'm going with. Everybody say a brief side note. When you look at these three branches, these three branches view salvation differently. There is some concepts there concerning salvation, but it is different, okay? If you talk to a Roman Catholic about salvation or a Greek Orthodox Christian, their view of salvation, there are some aspects that are the same. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But the way somebody is saved is different. The way somebody is saved is different. You would not go to a Roman Catholic and say to them, are you saved? That is foreign to them. You would not have a conversation with a Greek Orthodox and ask them, are you saved? That's foreign to them. But within the Protestant church, that is common language. Are you saved? That's a common language within the Protestant church. Now, who is the Protestant church? Anyone who is not Catholic and anyone who is not Greek Orthodox. So you are a part of the Protestant church. The word Protestant means to protest against. And we protested against that church, the Roman church, almost 500 years ago. And so when you ask the question, are you saved, to those other two branches, there, there is somewhat of a, that's foreign to them. Because salvation to them is through grace. They will not argue with that. But works is coupled with grace. But when you speak to a Protestant, they understand that salvation is through, is, through, is through grace, but it's through faith alone. Justification through faith alone. That is one of the hallmark doctrines of the Protestant movement. Justification through faith alone. That's it. The other two branches understand that grace is involved, but grace is not the only thing that saves you. Okay? And so why are we talking about salvation? Because salvation is great. And if we're going to study any of the doctrines in the New Testament, any doctrines, if we're going to mature into the believer that God wants us to be, if we're going to understand the, uh, the riches of the mysteries of Christ, then the very first fundamental thing that we have to have under our belt and that we have to have a, uh, an understanding of, and that is the doctrine or the teaching of salvation. Because within the teaching of salvation, there are riches to be discovered. 
Now, I'm sure that you're thinking tonight, I already know what it means to be saved. I'm already a Christian. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, salvation is more than just saying, I'm a Christian. Salvation is more, say, salvation is more than raising your hand and the preacher saying, oh, God bless that hand and God bless that hand. Salvation is so much deeper and so much richer than just saying, I'm saved. Or walking down the aisle and repenting of your sin. Although those are elements to salvation, and although those are important to salvation, but salvation is so deep and so rich that it encompasses more than just saying, I'm saved. And for so long in the church, we have preached salvation in such a way that it has become cheap to us. It's become very cheap to many individuals. Some people don't even understand what salvation is. You ask them in the Protestant church or any other branch of Christianity, are you saved? And their first response is, saved from what? Saved from what? Their understanding of salvation is very bleak. And so tonight, we're going to take a journey for the next five weeks and we're going to look at the rich, deep doctrine of salvation found in Scripture. You see, it is a mystery. Salvation is somewhat of a mystery. How God Himself loved planet Earth and would come in the form of a human being and stretch out His arms on a cross and die for the sins of the world. That is almost a mystery to me. How God would become a man and yet that doctrine of salvation is the fundamental doctrine that separates Christianity from all other religions around the world. The three monotheistic religions of the world is Judaism and Islam and Christianity is one of those monotheistic religions. Judaism and Islam claim to worship the one true God, but the problem that they have with Christianity is that they don't understand how God would become a man and die on the cross. So the idea of salvation, that God would become one of us and die on the cross, is very, it's blaspheming to them to think of such a way that God would, God would have a son. And so this is a deep, deep issue. This is a rich issue. This is, an, it, this is a doctrine filled with richness. And let us not approach the table of the Lord tonight thinking that we have everything figured out and thinking that, oh, since it's salvation, I got it figured out, I'm saved, and on my way to heaven. That is a horrible mistake to have tonight to come to the table of the Lord and think that we got it all figured out and we've been in church all these years and so somehow we got the salvation issue figured out. And if we do have the salvation issue figured out, then why is there so many commentaries written about salvation? Because people still wrestle with issues of salvation even today. You see what I'm saying? So let us not think we have it all figured out because let us, for the next five weeks, let us be students of the Word. The scripture does not say read the word so that you could be so that you can rightfully divide the word of truth. It says to study to show thyself approved unto God. And so tonight I'm asking you to be a student of the word and pull yourself up to this spiritual table and come on somebody and put that apron on and let's eat together and feast from the table of the Lord. Can I hear an amen? Let's feast together. So one of the things when we come to the table of the Lord, let us, not, let us not think we have it figured out. And I have, in my own life, I have missed great blessings 
because I felt like I had something figured out and I did not come to the table of the Lord receptive and hungry to hear from the word of the Lord. And Jesus said in John chapter 6, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. And yet in these five weeks, there is an understanding of the word of God that we have to process through our reasoning. Jesus, God gave us a mind. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. So tonight when you come to the word of God, there is a a reason, there's an intellect that you have to engage with the word of God. God gave you that mind and you're to use it. But also there is that spiritual thing that we have to spiritually discern. Because Jesus said, my words I speak, they are spirit and they are life. And sometimes we have to spiritually also discern the word of God with our spirit as well with our mind and our spirit. So when we think of salvation tonight, it is, it is one of the great doctrines of the church, and it has been one of the great doctrines of the church for 2,000 years. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, when you begin to look at the world in a casual way, just look at the world in a casual way. It doesn't, I'm not asking you to be a theologian or a philosopher. If you just looked at the world in a casual way, you'll soon discover that man is in a fallen condition. Man is completely helpless to help himself. Isn't that true? And even man at its very best attempt to help ourselves, somehow we fall short in helping ourselves. Society for years have tried to offer peace and prosperity to those who live in society. And to some extent, they've been successful. But yet man has fallen short in trying to help itself themselves. If you look at the world locally, if you look at the world nationally and internationally, you will soon discover that sin has devastating results upon humanity. Man has tried to fix themselves for years. And we've tried to offer solutions to the problems of man's heart. We've tried everything. And the solutions that we've offered, ladies and gentlemen, have been endless. We have tried medicine to help people. We've tried counseling and therapy and rehabs and groups and education. And the list goes on and on, trying to fix man's problem. And although, let me say this, there is certainly nothing wrong with medicine and counseling and therapy and rehabs because they have helped to a certain extent. They have helped us cope with our symptoms. But those things in itself have never solved the root of man's problems. And if all we focus on is the symptoms of our problems, which these things I listed, they really do help. But if we don't understand that the problem of man's hearts is much deeper than porn and much deeper than alcohol and is much deeper than divorce and it's much deeper than rape, And if all we do in society is try to fix those issues and try to solve those symptoms and treat those symptoms, the problem will always be reoccurring if we don't get to the root of the problem. Can I hear an amen? And for years we have dealt with the spider. For years we have dealt with the cobwebs and we forgot that there's a spider loose. And if all we're going to do is focus on the cobwebs and not kill the spider, then that's going to be a problem that we're going to have to deal with until Jesus comes. And so I am asking you that if you look at Scripture, 
you will find that God gives us a solution to man's problem. And this solution takes care of the root of the problem. Can I hear an amen? Takes care of the root of the problem. Instead of man trying to take care of the symptoms and trying to take care of all that stuff, God offers a problem to take care of the root of the issue. The Bible offers this solution, and it's called salvation. Salvation. Now, if you look at the word salvation, if you look at it, it comes from the Greek word soteria. Soteria, which is the word we get savior, savior. Salvation comes from the Greek word soteria, which is the English rendering of the word savior. So it encompasses God redeeming humanity, but salvation actually encompasses a whole lot more things than God just redeeming mankind. Actually, salvation communicates the thought of healing, restoration, deliverance, and safety. Those are the four main words that salvation in this particular context carries the thought. It carries the thought of deliverance. It carries the thought of soundness and healing and restoration. So salvation comes from the Greek word soteria, which is the English word savior. And so when we're looking at the subject of salvation, we understand that our savior not only redeems us from the fall of humanity, but our savior does a whole lot more than just redeem us from the sin issue. He really does restore our relationship back to God. Can I hear an amen? He provides the healing of mankind. He heals our spirit. He heals our soul. He, may, he bridges the gap between God and man. And so salvation is not just redeeming mankind from their fallen state, but it also carries the thought of healing, deliverance, restoration, and soundness. And let me say this, that when you are truly converted, all of those things really do take place in your heart. There is this sense of restoration. There's this sense of soundness. There's this sense of healing, this sense that God has brought you into safety. You were outside of the family of God. You were alienated. You were a stranger, and yet God brings you in. He restores your covenant. He brings you back in. There's this soundness. What you couldn't hear before, you can hear now. What you were dull before, your ears are open and you can hear now. Can I hear an amen? So salvation deals with restoration, safety, and deliverance, and etc. All right, now, if you ever asked, if you ever pondered the question, and let me say this, in this particular study tonight, we're going to look at salvation in the aspect of God redeeming us from our fallen state, okay? Salvation in the aspect of God redeeming us from our fallen state. The work of God, salvation is the work of God rescuing men from their lost estate. That is, that's salvation in its very general terms. It is the work of God rescuing men from their lost state. That is a very general uh, uh, definition of salvation. And so I'm going to say that again so you can write that down. A general definition of salvation is the work of God rescuing men from their lost estate. Estate, all right? So this is a very uh, broad definition 
of, of salvation today, all right? Now, let me ask you a question. Why would God want to save mankind? Why would he want to save us? And I said a few minutes ago, this is a dividing doctrine between the monotheistic religions of the world. Now, hopefully you understand what I mean by monotheistic. The word monotheistic means one. And so there are three main world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, who claim to worship one God. And those two other world religions are arch enemies of Christianity because of this issue of Jesus and salvation, his atonement for the sins of the world. And they can't, get, they can't understand why God would want to redeem humanity through becoming a man. That's very foreign to them. So let me ask you a question. Why would God want to save us? I mean, before the eons of time, before we ever existed, this was in the plan of God. This is not something that God came up with and God decided, oh, on a whim, I think I'm going to send my son. He's going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. This wasn't a last-minute decision that God decided to save humanity. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God had this in mind. This was predestined. This was not an afterthought. This was not something that God came up with. And this was not something that God came up with at the last moment, as if God couldn't come up with a better idea. Since God can't come up with a better idea, I think I'm just going to send my son to die for the sins of the world. This is not the way it happened. This was preordained in the mind of God from the eons of time that this is how God was going to save humanity. So let's first understand this was preordained in the mind of God that this is how God was going to work this thing out, all right? This wasn't a last-minute thing. And so now we have to explore the question of why would God want to save us? And why would God want to go through all of this issue? And one of the things I've talked to some of them, a Jew, I've, I mean, I love having conversations with people, and, and you know, and they're, they're like, well, it just doesn't make sense to me that, uh, uh, you know, why would God have to die on the cross? Why all this bloody mess? Why, why? And with Muslims, it's, I think the Quran says, God is neither begotten, neither does he beget, you know? This idea that God would be born of a virgin is ludicrous to them. So, it, it, you know, you know, you know, they believe in the virgin birth, but this idea that Jesus would die for the sins of the world and take care of the solution to man's problem is just ridiculous to them. So this is why this is so important and so valid for us to understand. And so why would God want to do such a thing? And listen, let's just break it down. Let's just, let's just break it down like this. If God is God and God can do whatever he wants to do because he's a sovereign God, then can't God just forgive us of our sins instead of going through this bloody mess of his son dying on the cross? And that is the excuse of the Muslims and the Jews to us. If God is sovereign and God is king, can't God just forgive us of our, you know, can't God just do it without going through this bloody mess? And so, yeah, that, that makes sense at first glance. But let us just take a few moments in Scripture and understand why God would do such a thing. Why would God want to do, go through this, this, this issue of his son dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And, and I am not going to give you something spooky tonight, and I'm not going to give you something oh, off the wall and something so deep that you know, it fries your mind so you've got to go home and try to decode what I said. Uh, I don't think that the Bible was written that way. I think the Bible is pretty simple. And number one, I think the reason that God did it this way is number one, because he reveals his love to us. 
This is a God who reveals His love to humanity. Number one, it reveals His love to us. Number one, why is salvation so great? Number one, because it reveals His love to us. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, this God wanted to reveal His love to humanity. In 1 John chapter number 4, 1 John chapter number 4, 1 John chapter number 4, and I want you to see verse number 7. 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7. Beloved, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, now look at this, in this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. The preceding verses deals with love, right? He says, in this, we know that God loves us. In this, the love of God was made manifested towards us. How was the love of God manifested towards us? It was manifested through His only begotten Son. Why would God go through all this mess? I'll tell you why God went through all this mess. Because He wanted to let you know how much He loves us. And I know that's a simple story. We heard it since we've been in Sunday school. But let me remind you that the love of God is real. Can I hear an amen? And that the love of God can change a person's life. This is why he did it. Because the love of God, he wanted to reveal the love of God. In this, the love of God is revealed. It was manifested. It was directed towards humanity. That God would send his son that we might live through him. Number one, it's because he wanted to reveal his love to us. That is why salvation is so great. Number two, I'll tell you why it's so great, is because it reveals his grace to us. It reveals his grace to us. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is something you don't work for. It's something that's bestowed upon you because of his sovereignty. Grace, unmerited favor, the favor of God. You know, I think we've all understand what grace is, especially if you have children. You know, your children are not perfect. They've said things. They've done things. They've been rebellious. They've talked back. But in spite of all of that, you've still given to them. Not because of what they've done, but because of your love towards them. You give to them. And that's what God does. Even in our fallen state, grace is still given to humanity. Somebody say amen. It, love is revealed to us and grace is revealed to us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 7. It reveals the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 7. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. Look at the scripture here. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse number 8. He says, I might show, I want to show you my grace in the ages to come. Verse number 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9 states it like this, Not of works, least any man should boast. Look at verse number 7 again. He said that in the ages to come, 
not only in this age, but the age to come. He says, ah, he says that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. So grace has riches with it. He says, I, he says what God wants to do is throughout the ages show his grace and favor to his people. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. This scripture, I believe, is powerful. Look, look at the wording of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 6. Verse number 6. Ephesians 1, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Do you see that phrase there? To the praise of the glory of His grace. The reason that salvation is demonstrated to us in this way is that the grace of God might receive glory. The grace of God might receive glory. How many can give God's grace a little glory tonight? He says, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He made us. So even the grace of God itself should be glorified. The unmerited favor. Why did God do it this way? He did it this way because He wanted to demonstrate His love to humanity. Number two, He wanted to reveal His grace to humanity. Number three, and, and this is such a long one, and I'll go back to it, so I'm not going to go a lot into it right now because there's a whole section on this. Number three, it reveals His holiness to us. It reveals His holiness to us. The Bible is simply clear that without holiness, no man can see God. It reveals His holiness to us. God is holy and mankind is sinful. God is righteous and mankind is fallen. God is upright and mankind is wicked. God is, God is, uh, is you know, righteous and holy, and yet mankind is, 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 is fallen in their condition. And so therefore, because God is holy, we cannot approach a holy God. Nobody who is sinful, our, our, our rags, our, our works of righteousness is filthy in His rags. And so therefore, there had to be a mediation between God and man to take care of this problem. God is holy and we're sinful. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, you don't get to heaven because you've got good intentions. You don't get to heaven because you, you thought good thoughts. You don't get to heaven because uh, God understands my heart. And boy, boy, isn't that, isn't that a horrible, horrible way to think? And you hear that a lot. God understands my heart. No, God don't understand your heart. You must first repent of your sin, acknowledge your sin before their salvation ever could occur. Well, God understands why I did that way. Yeah, God understands that you're wicked. God understands you're rebellious. And God understands you're stubborn. That's what God understands. <laughs> That's what God understands. God understands that you, in your own nature, you are rebellious. In your own nature, in the Adamic nature that comes from Adam, you are rebellious and stubborn and wicked and filthy. That's what God understands. And if we don't first understand that propitiation and the forgiveness of our sin is not through our works, it is through faith that brings a lot of deliverance to us. So, so you know, you can't work your way to heaven and you can't do sacraments and you can't, you know, no, 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 no. It's through faith alone. Okay? Through faith alone. Justification through faith alone first. So it reveals that God is holy and you're sinful. It reveals that He's God and you're not. Number four, it reveals His desire for fellowship. 
his desire for fellowship. Now, let me tell you this, God, and this, this might shock some of you, but God is not insecure. Can I hear an amen? God's not insecure. God don't need you to be texting him in the middle of the night. Come on, somebody. Can I hear an amen? You ever met somebody, all they do is text you, and all they do is run after you, and, and all they want is your approval? God ain't that way. You don't have to try to keep up with God and you know, try, to, try to make sure God, you know, God, you, you, you know we're best friends, don't you? You know, you know, you know it's, it, it's not that way. God desires fellowship. There is not a weakness in God's character. There is not a weakness in God's ability. Can I hear an amen? God in his sovereignty has chosen humanity to fellowship with. Can I hear an amen? It, it's not because God has to. It's not because God has a deep need. Because I've heard a lot of heretical preaching that God's lonely. And God's been lonely for a long time. And if you don't talk to God, God might soak a little bit and go to the closet because nobody is talking to God. Really? Is that the type of God we serve and worship that God is so insecure that if you don't talk to God, that God somehow is going to have a pity party because humanity is not talking to Him? God existed way before you ever come on the scene and he will exist afterwards. You understand what I'm saying? My point is, he desires fellowship. It's not a weakness of character that he has to have fellowship with you. It's a desire of his heart to have fellowship with you. You see, the scripture says that when God created man, the, one of the very first things that God did with man, he walked with him them in the cool of the day. He walked with them. He talked, he had communion with them. See, ladies and gentlemen, God desires communion. And the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, is the perfect example of fellowship. And yet, when we come together and we fellowship with our brothers and sisters, we are exemplifying the Trinity. The Trinity has perfect union. The Trinity has perfect communion of one with one another. And the church should be a symbol of the Holy Trinity. That as we come together, we should be perfectly joined together by the same Spirit of God. Can I hear an amen? When husband and wife is joined together in that holy covenant that is demonstrating the bride and the church coming together to commune and to fellowship with God. If you don't like, come on somebody, if you don't like to fellowship Everybody loves to fellowship, even if it's with one person. Somebody, everybody loves to fellowship. Can I hear an amen? God created you to fellowship. The Holy Trinity is the perfect example of fellowship. So the, the salvation demonstrates to us God's desire for fellowship with humanity. Number one, why is salvation so great? Salvation is so great because it demonstrates His love to us. Number two, it demonstrates His grace to us. It demonstrates His holiness to us. And lastly, it demonstrates His fellowship towards us. Now, quickly, as we progress in tonight's study, it's very important that we understand terminology. There's many different words for salvation. We'll get into those words later. Justification, propitiation, regeneration, sanctification. Those are different words for uh, the great doctrine of salvation. 
We're not going to go into the different words tonight. We have five weeks with those many different opportunities for us to look at the same terminology that demonstrates this concept. But what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about, uh, for the rest of tonight, I want to talk about the three phases of salvation, the three phases of salvation. And although you are correct to say, I am saved, that, that's okay to say. But salvation is more than saying, I am saved right now. Salvation encompasses a whole lot more than the present tense of salvation. And so tonight we're going to look at the three phases of salvation. Before we do that, the reason I think it's important is because the scripture indicates to us, I'm going to read two scriptures, there are other scriptures. The, the scriptures indicate to us that salvation is an ongoing process. Somebody say that with me. Salvation is an ongoing process. For instance, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This will demonstrate my point tonight that salvation is an ongoing process. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. I want you to see the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 18. Verse number 18. Um, Verse number 18, look at it. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So salvation is a process. Do you see the terminology that the apostle uses here that it is foolishness to those who do not understand it or to those who are not saved, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He did not say to those who are saved. He did not say to those who will be saved. He said to those who are being saved. So the concept, now there's many scriptures to, to illustrate the truth that salvation is a process. But we see in this concept here, this scripture, this text, that he's demonstrating that salvation is more than a, just a one-time thing. Salvation is an ongoing thing that God does. And aren't you glad for that? Somebody say amen. Salvation is just not a one-time thing. And I firmly believe that we have failed as a church to preach a doctrine, to come to the front and confess and to recite a sinner's prayer. And somehow, some way, we leave the church and there's no discipleship. There's no walking it out. There's no understanding sanctification. There's no, there's just repeat the prayer and leave Salvation doesn't end at the altar, ladies and gentlemen. Salvation begins at the altar. Salvation begins at the altar. So he said, to those who are being saved. Now look at another scripture, 2 Corinthians. You say, well, pastor, he's not talking to the church here. Now, hold on here. He, he's talking to a letter. I mean, he's writing a letter here. They didn't have Facebook. Okay, they didn't have email. They had to write, they had to write a letter here. And isn't it true that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse number 2, he is speaking to the church here. He's not speaking to sinners, okay? He's not speaking to those who are unconverted. He says to the church of God who is at Corinth. He's speaking to the church and he's saying to the church that the power of God or salvation is being saved. It's to, to those who don't understand it, it's foolishness, but to those who do and be, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he's talking to the church here. And he says to these, these Christians, he called them saints, okay? And he says, every person who calls on the name of the Lord, all these saints who call on the name of the Lord, this, this is who I'm talking about, verse number three. 
Verse number three, then he states that grace and peace from our God, our Father, be to you. And so he goes on to write this letter. And then isn't it interesting? Is it interesting? Go to chapter three, same book, 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse number one. Chapter three, verse number one. Now look at it. Don't lose me. This is so important. Verse number one, 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse number one. I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal. The word carnal is fleshly. I can't speak to you as spiritual people. I have to speak to you as fleshly people, as babes in Christ. Verse number two, then he states, verse number two, he says, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you're still a baby. Verse number three, verse number three, he says, for you're still fleshly, you're still carnal. For there's envy, strife, divisions among you. You're carnal. You're behaving like just carnal people. You're not behaving like spiritual Christians here. Verse number four, he goes on to explain. He says, some, you're arguing about I'm Paul and others Apollos. He says, you're arguing over stuff that you shouldn't be arguing about. So my point is, get this. I think it's appropriate that the Apostle Paul said that the gospel is foolish to those who don't believe, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, if you look at this, they're acting fleshly. There's division. There's strife in the church. Paul said, salvation is a process because some of you are still acting like babies. Can somebody say amen? Some of you are still walking in division and strife. Some of you still have a mouth problem. Come on, somebody. Somebody better throw your head back and say hallelujah. Aren't you glad that salvation is a process? And it would be a horrible, it, would be, it wouldn't be good if the Apostle Paul said, you got saved about three years ago, and that's it, buddy. You shouldn't be carnal. Matter of fact, you're all going to hell because there's division. No, he said, the power of God is salvation. It's, you're being saved. All of this junk, your whole, the Spirit of God is saved on the inside of you, and the Spirit of God is working in you. The Holy Spirit's working in you. Every time you come to church and hear the Word, the Spirit is working on you. Every time you turn on the worship music, the Spirit is working on you. Every time you read the Bible, the Spirit is working on you. How many know salvation is a process? It's a process. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 5. Look at what he says here. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Verse 15. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. He says this. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Among those who are being saved... And among those who are perishing. So here he's writing this epistle and says, these people, these, and these people were having issues. And 2 Corinthians, you all know, 2 Corinthians, um, you know, there was other issues that Paul was dealing with. You know, he, he dealt with people's gifts and people's callings. And, you know, the eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. He's saying even in this chapter, listen, we're being saved. I know there's some disagreements among the church, but you just have to let the Holy Spirit, you got to work out the salvation of the Holy Spirit. And what is my point tonight? Because the enemy will come to you and tell you, if you're saved, you should never think those thoughts. If you're saved, you should have never said that. 
If you're saved, you should have never acted like that. Listen, a Christian don't want to sin. A sinner wants to sin. The want to is not in you. You don't want to do it. But sometimes, how many knows the Adamic nature gets the best of us? You, there's not that want to. You don't want to do it. But you've got to let the Holy Spirit bring out the salvation inside of you. What He started at the altar, you let the Holy Spirit do it. Can I hear an amen? The problem is, is what happens is some of us don't let the Holy Spirit do it and we stay in our sin and then that gets into backsliding because we're not letting the Holy Spirit work out those issues or we're not teachable and we're not listening and we're, we're still walking in the flesh and that could be dangerous if we continue to let that happen. All right? Somebody say amen. So salvation, now there's other scriptures, but you get the point. Salvation is a process. Salvation is a process. What kind of process it is? Well, salvation is three stages. Number one, the first stage of salvation is the past tense. Past. Past tense. So just write in your no notebook the three phases of salvation. Past tense. Past tense. And what do I mean by past tense salvation? Well, you were saved. Okay? Christ died for the ungodly even while we were in sin. Christ died for us. We Christ already died and took care of our sin, past tense. Can I hear an amen? And so what this does, this demonstrates the truth that, that He delivers us from the penalty of sin. Okay? What is the penalty of sin? The penalty of sin is judgment. Is that right? So when you become born again and saved, instantaneously, now look, everybody look at me. When you become born again and you become quote-unquote saved, and you truly, and when I use the word truly, because we know not everybody that gets saved is truly saved, but when somebody is truly saved and converted, brought from darkness into light, what begins to happen is miraculous. It, it, it's, it, it is truly a miraculous thing. And He delivers us at that moment, get this, at that moment of salvation, you are delivered from the penalty of sin. In other words, you are delivered from the judgment of sin. You're no longer condemned to a devil's hell. You are made righteous in God's eyes, ready for heaven, as if you've never sinned. Somebody say amen. Now, stop here. Have you ever met somebody who's truly saved and converted, but yet they die because of the consequences of sin? They tore up their liver because they drank too much, or whatever. They, they, they live with the concept. They still got to go to court. They still got to deal with the marriage that they said, I do at the altar. Mm -hmm. Come on, somebody. They still got to deal with all the decisions that they made because salvation doesn't deliver you from the decisions that you have made. The moment you are converted, it delivers you from the judgment of that sin. Because this is the misunderstanding. People get saved and they're like, well, I just thought the judge was going to forgive me when I went to court on Monday morning. No, baby. No. You still got to deal with the decisions that you've made. But this time, the Holy Spirit's going to walk with you and through you to help you accomplish that. Come on, somebody. So the very first thing that happens at salvation, you are delivered from judgment. You are passed from death to life. You're no longer sentenced to a devil's hell. You are delivered from judgment and ready for paradise. That right there would make a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Roman Catholic speak in tongues. Right there. We are delivered from judgment. Can somebody say amen? 
So no matter how you feel tonight, you say, well, pastor, I live with the devil. You don't know I live with the devil. You know, and, and you, you know, I, I just got all this. Well, there's one thing you can shout about tonight. You have been delivered from the penalty of sin. Now, you all act like you're on a respirator tonight. I said, you have been delivered from the penalty of sin. You're delivered from it. Pass from death unto life. Now, we'll look at other scriptures tonight. So, so past ten salvation is that you were saved. And through that past ten salvation, you're delivered from judgment. You've been set free from judgment. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 50. A very familiar passage of scripture. Luke chapter, numbers, Luke chapter 7 and verse number 50. It deals with, it deals with um, uh, verse number 50. It deals with the uh, sinful woman who was forgiven. And she, you know the story. She goes into the Pharisee's house. And um, the Bible says that there was a woman of the city that, that was there. And she goes over, and what does she do? She begins to, um, uh, she begins to wash his feet. Is that right? With fragrant oil. And there was a big mess over. The Pharisees and religious leaders just threw a big fit that a, that a, a woman of the city would touch a rabbi. But what happens that Jesus says something so powerful to this woman of the city, and we assume that she's a prostitute, a woman of the night, you know. She's just, she's just you know, she just did some nasty things, okay? But verse number 50, the hallmark of it, Jesus looks at this woman and says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, isn't it amazing that this woman never attended a church service, never took sacrament, never read a book, never went to help self-meeting? She was, her faith right there saved her. Because that's what it does. You know what salvation is? Salvation it imputes grace to us. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him righteousness. See what I'm saying? The moment you believe in God, He imputes righteousness to you because you believed. That means He's pardoned you. The moment He imputes righteousness to you. In medieval theology, when uh, the Roman Catholic Church was the dominant church in religion, they taught what we call fusion theology. Fusion theology. Fusion theology states this. Come here, Pastor David. Fusion theology states this. I'm God, and you be the sinner, okay? Unless you want to be God, and I'll be the sinner. Okay, okay. <laughs> so you're the sinner, and I'm God. And fusion theology, fusion theology, this is medieval theology, and the church still, the Roman church still holds true to this, okay? This is their concept of salvation. Fusion theology states that I'm God, you're the sinner, okay? Jesus paid for the penalty of sin. They agree with that, okay? But this is where we differ. I'm God, you're the sinner, and so therefore, the church requires you to participate in sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, confession, holy orders, etc., etc. You do these things that the church has required you to do Therefore, salvation will be granted to you. So, you go to Mass, take one step. I'm, I'm going to be more distant from you. So, you take one step, 
So he takes one step, and God sees that he took a step. He obeyed the church. So God takes a step. You take communion. So you get closer to God. And God gets closer to you. You go to confession. And you do exactly what the church tells you to do. So you come closer to God. And God becomes closer to you. Until eventually, your whole lifetime, you've obeyed the church. So hopefully, you have eternal life because you're fused together to God. Fusion theology. Okay? So, but our theology... And scriptural theology states that you're the sinner and I'm God. You don't have the strength to come to me. You don't have the ability to come to God. You just believe God, and the moment you believe God, God pardons you. And you see, do you see how sometimes, I grew up in the old church, y'all, old school church. Y'all know what old school church is. Come on. And in a certain way, that's what we taught. Kind of. We would never say it. And most of them wasn't smart enough to know it was fusion theology. But, you know, you, you just do all these things we want you to do. And, and, and if you miss a church service, it was as if you were going to hell. Honestly, you couldn't miss a church service. I mean, I've thrown up in the bathroom, but I'm going to church, bless God. <laughs> Can I hear an Amen. And so therefore, I felt, and we may never say that, but we always felt as though works, works, works. And do you know, it, it bothered me so much. You know what I used to do? I still do it to a certain extent, but I would write down everything, everything that came into my hands as money, everything. And I'd make sure everything was tithed on. I remember times of me getting up out of bed because I thought, oh, somebody gave me $20. So I'd go and write the $20 down so I can make sure I'm tithing on it, so therefore it's not a mark against me. That's how legalistic we were taught. And legalistic as in, you know, you know, I mean, and it just on, and even though we would never t teach people that saved you, that's the concept or the mindset we developed. We would never say it saved you, but that's the mindset it cultivated that, you know, and I was so legalistic about tithing. I remember one time, Honest, honest to God, I was in Bible college. I was struggling so bad, and I was always a tither that I didn't tithe one time. Actually, I don't think I tithed for a few months, because I could, I mean, it was bad. And I was so under condemnation. I remember I was praying. I was repenting over it. I said, oh, God, forgive me. I'm, oh, God, forgive me, redeem me. I'm sorry. And I was, as if I thought it was a salvation issue. I remember I went to church one Sunday morning, no joke. The pastor got up and said, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me and said, somebody in this audience has condemned yourself because you haven't tithed. And the Lord says, let yourself go. God's grace has been demonstrated to you. You've learned from it. Get back on and go forward. Quit condemning yourself. And that word of God delivered me that day. How many know one word can deliver you? Now, this is what I'm not preaching. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to church and you shouldn't tithe and you shouldn't do that. Because as we'll see in Scripture, good works is the fruit of genuine conversion. Am I right about that? So if you are genuinely converted, there's going to be some fruit on your tree. People say, well, you better not judge me. Well, show me some fruit. Come on, somebody. So if there's genuine conversion, if you've really got the root taken care of, it's going to affect the fruit. Okay, so there should be some fruit. And fruits could, you know, your gifts of service you know, attending worship services, giving, those are things that we do not to earn 
God's grace. But as an act of worship, we give this back to him for what he's done to us. Thank you, Pastor David. So past tense salvation is that we are delivered from the penalty of sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 5. Look at this scripture. We're looking at number one, the penal, delivered from the penalty of sin, past tense. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 5. Um, it says this, verse number 4. But God... Well, look at verse number 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1, because I think it's important. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And somebody asked me one time, Pastor, why do you quote the scripture about five times? Well, I think it's when I was a child, I remember the preachers preaching. They would say, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Okay. And he was, I was like, whoa, ho, ho, whoa. So I just want to make sure you got it. Is that all right? Ephesians chapter 2, everyone say verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and your sin, in which you once, past tense, past tense, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, among whom also once conducted yourself in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. You were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Okay? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were, past tense, dead in trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By Christ, you, by grace, you have been saved. So, past tense salvation simply says that salvation was in the mind of God. The work was already done. And you have to respond to that grace. So how many's had a salvation experience? Right? Salvation experience. Most of us has had a crisis experience. Crisis experience. What I mean by that, just listen to all of our hymns. What's that hymn? Um, you will, but what's that one song, Sean? Um, uh, what's that song we just sung? I never shall. I never shall forget the day when all the burdens of my soul rolled away. Made me See, it's all crisis experience. I remember one time I was in sin. I was drinking. <laughs> there was a tear in my beard. So, you know, we sing, all, we sing all these crisis. Now, hold on here. We sing these crisis experience songs. Just think of songs we sing in church that we get people shouting. You know, you know, of singing. Does anybody have another song that we used to sing? Talking about how I was lonely and lost and dying and God saved me. So a crisis. Therefore, what we're saying is I can look back in my life and I could pick a day. I got saved. I got saved on 23rd and Annie Baxter. <laughs> On Sunday night, June the 4th, 1974, the Holy Ghost, you know. How many's ever heard that before? Somebody say that. So, but to other Christians, that's foreign to them because, remember, salvation is not a crisis experience. It's more of, if I do these things, I'm saved, you see. But in Protestantism, it's, we emphasize the crisis. And with me, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to be careful with that terminology, because there's lots of people that can't remember a crisis experience, like me. 
I don't remember how I was deep in, I was in sin, but I can't recall, I mean, I've always really just loved Jesus. Now, I wasn't always saved. Don't leave here thinking I'm preaching a heresy. I am a sinner, deep, rebellion, wicked. But I love Jesus since I can remember, and somehow the Holy Spirit, through my confession of sin, whether I was a child or a teenager, I've always was drawn towards Him. He saved me. Can I hear an amen? And there's many of you that's loved Jesus all your life, and you can't remember a crisis experience. I, I got saved every Sunday night, folks. And I, got, I know I've got baptized at least 15 times in the river. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? I mean, so, I, I mean, I've been, and listen, and, and growing up, they wanted to make sure you really baptized. I got baptized in Jesus' name and Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Can I hear an amen? The only thing that I never got done is sprinkled. But, you know, hey, I'm like, hey, whatever, whatever the church says. You know, and so this crisis moment where we, you know, and, and we got to be careful in the church to say, you know, you know if, if you're not, if you wasn't drinking and partying and sleeping around, then you don't got a testimony. Because we believe salvation can keep you from the works of sin. Can I hear an amen? Has the ability to save you and break the power of sin. So uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Are we okay, y'all? Is everybody good? Say amen. We're stopping at 8 o'clock, so is, is everybody enjoying tonight? Say amen. Okay. Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing and regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 6. Verse number 6 states this. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What did he pour out on us? Mercy. And he just didn't pour it out upon us. He abundantly poured it out on us. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Verse number seven states this, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You've already been justified. According to this, you should become the heirs of the hope of eternal life. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the last scripture here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, past tense salvation is you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Verse number 25, Hebrews 7, verse 25, therefore he is also able to save us to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, since he has always lived to make intercession for them. So he is able to save to the uttermost those who are able to believe on his son. So number one, past tense salvation. Number two, present tense. Present tense. And the present tense salvation delivers us from the power of sin. So you're delivered from the penalty of sin, judgment. And number two, you are now delivered from the power of sin. The power of sin. Now, this gets, this gets uh, tricky here. Because if we're not careful, we want to condemn everybody who has committed sin as if they're not saved. It, is it possible? Let me ask you this question. Is it possible to have been truly saved, truly born again, 
truly regenerated and yet have sin issues? Of course. Yes, it's course. And it's very, very important, you know, uh, you know, that we don't preach a gospel that somehow everybody is automatically perfected the moment of salvation. That's not true. There are Christians who really do struggle with some sin issues. They don't want to sin. They hate it. They absolutely hate it. There is nothing in them that wants to sin because the Holy Spirit don't want to sin. But there is an issue that they are dealing with. And some people, now get this, some people because, now get this, some people because of the Adamic nature of sin have strong tendencies towards something that some people would not. Some people may have a strong tendency to overeat, okay, or to have food disorder. Some people may have a tendency towards sexual issues. Some people may have a tendency towards, you know, they're just a busybody and a gossiper, you know, they just have trouble, or a gambler, or greed. Some people deal with certain things. Some people have thorns in the flesh that they deal with. Can I hear an amen? And that is why we got to walk this thing out, and that is why we got to crucify the flesh on a daily basis. Can I hear an amen? So, so it delivers you, and this is what we call sanctification. So you are, the word sanctification means to be set apart. You are set apart at the moment of conversion, and you are being set apart in a process. You are delivered from the power of sin. For instance, Romans chapter 6 gives a great discourse of Christians who are dealing with sin. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. Now, before we go there, can I just set a, a, a perimeter here? Because it's very important that you see this. I am going to establish a case where some Christians are dealing with sin, okay? And Paul, um, Paul here is, is, is writing this epistle to the Romans and he's writing it to believers, okay? Um, he says to Romans chapter 1, verse 7, he's writing to believers here. He's not writing to Christians, he's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Okay, so he's talking about saints here. He ain't talking about old Joe on the street. He's talking about people who believe the word who's been converted and saved, possibly water baptized, and he's writing this epistle, and this is what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, he says this, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? So obviously there are issues with Christians here. Verse number three, or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You know what Paul was saying? When you got saved, you should have died to sin. You're dead to sin. But some of you having issues with it. Come on, somebody. Now, Let's go to verse number, I want you to see this. Go to verse number um, 12. He says to these believers, verse number 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. 
don't commit behavior that's sinful. Okay? Stay away from it. He says, verse number 13, and do not present, look at verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. In other words, your body, listen to me, church, your body now, hold on, is now a slave to do good things. It's not a slave to do sinful things. The Apostle Paul said, now your members are slaves to righteousness, is not slaves to unrighteousness. So your body, what you do with your body is an instrument. And it should be a slave to righteousness and not a slave to unrighteousness. Can I hear an amen? He says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. So your body, it cracks me up with people. It cracks me up people with people. Well, you know, I'm saved. And they just do whatever they want to their body and just, you know, whatever, because, you know, they're free and they're safe. But the Apostle Paul is making a discourse here. He is saying that your body, your flesh and blood body, should be an instrument to righteousness, and it should never be an instrument of unrighteousness. So therefore, your tongue should not be an instrument of gossip. It should be an instrument of praise. Your hands should not be an instrument, come on somebody, of unrighteousness. It should be hands of righteousness. Your feet should not be busybodies. Your feet should be feet of righteousness. It should go and carry the gospel. You are now a slave to righteousness. To do good things. Not a slave to sin any longer. He said, he says, now verse 12, he says, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Don't present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under law but under grace. Verse number 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace, certainly not. Do, not. do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to? You obey, and you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether one sin is leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God, but God be thanked that through you, you were once slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that from of the doctrine to which you have been delivered, and you have been set free from sin, and you have become slaves of righteousness. You hear me? He's saying, listen, should you sin now, since you're saved, and you're under grace? He said, no, certainly not. And he says, and don't present your bodies to do evil, or to present to do unrighteous things. He says, you don't have to do that because salvation has saved you and you're no longer a slave to do that. Now, what he's saying this, listen, he says before you had to be a slave to unrighteousness because you had no strength against it. Your spirit was dead. But now since the spirit of God lives inside of you, you don't have to do that any longer. Now, can you do it? You can do it, but you don't have to. You don't have to. So you know what salvation does? Salvation breaks the power 
of sin off of your life. In other words, salvation breaks the ability, the dominion of sin off of your life where you don't have to do it. But pastor, I fell into it. It's called self-control. Boy, boy, that's a word. Y'all, y'all better help me preach. That's a word we don't like, huh? And it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. We don't like self-control, do we? We don't like that word, do we? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say unto you, if you would become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have been entangled from Christ, and you who attempted to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we, though through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, no no circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Verse 7, look at this. You ran well who hindered you from obeying the truth. They were Christians. They were hindered from obeying the truth. They were entangled in a doctrine, heresy. And because of that doctrine, they were entangled to believe a certain thing that Paul was saying, you're not obligated to obey any longer. He says, Christ has made you free. And don't entangle yourself to, the, to circumcision, which binds you to the whole law. He says, now you are free. Salvation, God's grace has broke that off of you. And now you can walk in freedom. 